1: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. We're going to talk about COVID-19 still, as long as it's still out there in our lives. A returning guest tonight, Dr. Daniel Magus, who's been keeping up on the coronavirus issues and is with us again tonight to talk about what is going on July 23rd, 2020. Dr. Magus, thank you again for joining us as always.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's very good to be with you again.
1: It's it's good that we're all here. Yes, (laughs) I like that that element of it. Uh, You've been keeping up on COVID-19, and uh, we've sort of gone around the block. Ohio is going through another surge of cases, especially here in Cuyahoga County. Um, What do you make of that? Why is this happening? What's different than when we originally talked, and I went back to the records, we talked back in February
0: well it has a lot to do with contacts and how many people are meeting each other and transmitting it between each other as we try desperately to open up our uh, our states and our functions and our activities and our economy um uh, you, it, it increased the risk of transmitting the virus now there are some definite ways to prevent it uh, or at least to mitigate it um the recommendations are distancing and uh, wearing a mask and Originally, two, three months ago, this was based on conjecture, based on the the epidemiology and the behavior of the COVID um, uh, that occurred in 2003, and then in the MERS in 2013. Both of those um, uh, viral outbreaks were mitigated dramatically by wearing masks and by separation of people, distancing. Uh, But now... Uh, Those recommendations still hold, but there's hard data that show they definitely do work even in this environment. Um, What's worked globally the most to cut down the spread of the virus is lockdowns at home. Everyone stay at home. But you can't do that indefinitely. Uh, Sooner or later, your economy is going to suffer so badly that everybody um, needs food to eat and they need money to spend on, on necessities of life. So locking down is a last resort. Um you definitely have definite um uh definite improvement and definite benefit by distancing, six feet or more, and wearing the mask. See? Now the uh the healthcare providers are wearing the N ninety five masks in the hospital settings and in the office, um very often because they they, they uh block ninety five percent of particulate matter and are the most um uh beneficial and the safest uh when uh, you're involved in healthcare and you're involved with uh, meeting the virus on a regular basis. Um, on the other hand, uh, we don't have 95 masks. They're only available at healthcare professionals because, they, because they're because somewhat short of supply. But any of the masks, the cloth masks you wear, the surgical masks that you can get over the counter, uh, they all block the um, two ways, the, uh, the uh, inhalation of aerosol. But most dramatically, it blocks the output, the uh, outward flow of aerosols out of one's mouth. So when you wear a mask, you're partially protecting yourself, but you're more protecting the person in front of you that you're meeting and you're talking to, and you're potentially contaminating by your own voice and your own own, uh, speech. So those measures do make a difference. And as more and more people get on track, and do this it's it we're all in this together it's a matter of physical responsibility um that um that you go out and wear a mask to protect the person you're meeting um, and since a lot of people are asymptomatic and spreading it and don't know they have it that's the danger uh we are you know the old saying a man's uh, home is his castle and he's the king and that's true But when you're out in common areas that are shared by everybody else you suddenly have a civic responsibility. Behave responsibly, and responsible behavior at this time says requires us to um, limit the con- uh, contamination that we can uh, spread to others and receive from others. Uh,
1: that are the same questions we've had for months now. Uh, when we talk about the transmission of the virus, it's still the same old story that hasn't changed. It's a virus that exists in humans and it's past in droplet form. Is that still the science, or has it changed in any
0: way? Yes,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Now, it's possible it can be um, uh, transmitted by uh, touching uh, uh, surfaces, but there's no documentation that everybody's caught the virus by, by uh, the contact with a contaminated surface.
1: So as we're talking yeah, about the droplets... And we're talking about the N95s. Uh, for anyone who is using an N95 or getting an N95, is, uh, unless it's properly fitted, is it going to really prevent them from having a wave of virus uh, sweep over them with an N95 mask? Are they going to be protected if they're with someone uh, who well, is, is right. uh, actually bad, bad with the virus?
0: yeah that that is true um healthcare providers who are given these n95 masks because they encounter the virus on a regular basis are fitted very carefully to get the maximum efficiency out it you have to fit it very carefully to the face and this can take any 10 to 20 minutes to do and if you change and get another mask you have to have it refitted and uh so if you have enough masks to wear a new one every day, uh, you have to refit it to your to your face. Uh, if um, it's an, And because it has to be fit so tight, it's sometimes uncomfortable. you got to give people credit who are able to work with it all day and just gut it out uh, despite the discomfort of wearing that mask. If you manipulate it with your hands, you're more likely to contaminate yourself uh, just by fussing with it. So it only works if it fits very tight and you keep your hands off of it. So it, it's it's a challenge to wear, and you've got to you've got to give the, the healthcare workers who are working in the trenches every day a tremendous amount of credit to put up with that 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 distraction to, to the daily work that they have to, which is challenging to begin with. Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
1: Oh, when when we're talking about uh, passing on from uh, one person to another or from surface to surface. Uh, let's just talk about surfacing uh, for a moment. When we have a surface that's contaminated, uh, are all things equal, such as gloves, hand sanitizer, or washing your hands, or are there is there one better than the other? The
0: uh, the uh, it does help to put a sanitizer out there and spray it. Uh, the sanitizing uh, with um, with um, Chlorine and with uh, ammonia do actually kill the virus. Number one, so you can contaminate, decontaminate a surface in the hospital, in the office, um, in the in any place where there's people sitting in a chair, or um, even the hospital. Um, uh, that um, gym equipment can be contaminated very easily, and then you wipe it down. Um, soap works, but soap works the best because it can um, not only it. Uh, tends to kill the virus, but it also washes it away. So that's why you've got to wash for 20 seconds. You've got to wash long enough that you dissolve all the grease and grime from your hands, get all the virus uh, mixed in with that, and then you can rinse it out. Uh, the hand sanitizers, um, they're, they're, they're not disinfectants. Um, they are alcohol-based, and they do kill some of the virus and do to decrease the transmission a little bit, but it's not nearly as effective as hand-washing with soap uh, or the disinfectant sprays with the chloride and ammonia. So, but um, it's been, the, the sanitizer better than nothing, and they do work to some extent. The, the ideal thing to do is if you're touching a lot of objects, wash your hands as often as you can, as long as your skin can tolerate the dryness.
1: Is is there some recommended frequency of washing hands, like uh, every couple hours or once a day?
0: No. Or? No. It depends on what your skin can handle and tolerate, and uh, what your risk is, and that you kind of have to divide that. But there is some good news. There's there's some good news. Uh, um, if you'd like to get into that, there's some um, there's some treatments that have seemed to be working and uh, there's th- at least three vaccines on the horizon that may be available in as little as 6 months. If you'd like we can talk a little about that.
1: Well yeah, let's let's do that. Let's wait till after our break on on those issues because okay. we do need good news. Another question okay. before we we take a break just in 30 seconds uh is the asymptomatic passing is it passing in an aerosol fashion? Meaning that it's floating yeah. in the air, or are we still in droplets? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's um, it's uh, it, yeah. They still have aerosols it, it, it's expelled out of the mouth in asymptomatic people, and uh, you know the, uh, the the trouble is, if you're asymptomatic, you may not be very very careful uh, because you you think you're safe, and uh, uh, you may not be. The only way you can really go out and be safe is assume that you may be asymptomatic, may be caring, and take the precautions of wearing the mask and don't get too close to people.
1: Well, let's hold up there at this point because we're going to take a short break. Okay. We're talking to Dr. Yeah. Daniel Magus, a returning guest, telling us about COVID-19, and we're talking about what's happening now with it uh, in July 2020. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Welcome back Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus about the COVID-19. Dr. Magus, again, as always, thank you for joining us and helping us understand what's going on.
0: Okay. I'm still here. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh,
1: glad glad to have you here. Um, As we were talking before the break, we were talking about uh, the different things with COVID and how it's spreading. And it's still there and it's still spreading. Uh, With regard to when we talked, say, six weeks ago, most of the cases were coming out of nursing homes and prisons and those communities where people are living close together. Uh, We are seeing something new, that we have a different uh, average age. Tell us what's going on here.
0: Yes, about six weeks ago, 70% of the cases in Ohio were uh, nursing homes, assisted living, and prisons. Um, That's not the case anymore. Since the surge, since we've opened up and more and more people are re-engaging with each other, uh, uh, we have a surge of increase in cases. But uh, at the same time, the median age has dropped very dramatically. The median age now in Ohio is 43, age 43, meaning just as many people under the age of 43, are um have contacted and been con have been uh positive with the PCR swab test as many as those people over age 43 so 43 is the mean so there's a lot of young people who have caught this within the last 6 weeks and um are symptomatic there are 20 and 30 year olds uh in the state of ohio now fighting for their lives so just because you're young doesn't mean you're um not vulnerable this virus is not going to go away on its own uh, we're going to have to deal with it in one way or the other, and the public health measures are the ones that are more effective. Um, there are some treatments that we can get into, uh, but uh, but they're but they're limited. Number one and number two, the vaccines won't be out if we're lucky for at least another six months. But there, there's a lot of asymptomatic spread, and the study and that came out in the Journal American Medical Association um, uh, was um, uh, quoted a CDC study. That um, in the U.S. between March and May, and then May 12th, um, they did sero, uh, serology tests, and one percent of the people in San Francisco uh, are positive or have been exposed to the virus, and it's up to seven percent in New York City. And based on the, uh, the, the the prevalence, the number of people that have antibodies coronavirus, you can estimate that places like Missouri have 24 times more people. Um, who have been exposed to the virus and re- and and uh, reproduce antibodies from it and are therefore potentially uh, capable of transmitting it at least for a while than for than those that have been um, actually diagnosed with the swab. So for every person diagnosed with a swab in Missouri, they estimate twenty four people have it and don't know it. Um, in six other cities, the estimates are 10. 10- times uh, higher than was reported with the swab test, which means that for every person documented with a swab for COVID-19, that there are 10 people running around exposed to the virus who have it and are infectious uh, for a while, uh, but don't know it. So if if that's the case, it's Mm -hmm. extremely difficult to control this unless you stay away from people and you wear your mask. Especially in closed places, and doors like do, a, a gym or Do we have restaurant. any?
1: Have, have you run into numbers as to uh, how many people have had it with very mild, if or even no symptoms? Like how often? What's the frequency where that happens to get such a, a large infection rate? Uh,
0: I don't. I don't have the, the numbers of mild versus severe. Um, it's it, it, uh, it's hard to collect that, it. but it's hard to get that kind of data because um, uh, number they're, one, they're not the, reporting. The CDC is well, having trouble keeping up with the cases to begin with. Number one. Second of all, if somebody's mild on Tuesday, he may be severe by Friday. So um, that, that data is difficult to collect and may be unreliable. Uh, uh, as far as I know, it just does not exist.
1: When we talk about treatments, how have treatments changed and improved from those six weeks ago or even further back and when we were starting back things, in February, March?
0: Things. Yeah, there's a few things uh, that, that work. Um, the, the, the biggest disappointment was the azithromycin and the hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine the, um, that you use for people with lupus and uh, other kind of connective tissue diseases. Um, they have great in vitro activity against the virus in the test tube um, in the lab, but when you get them in the body, they don't seem to make a difference. Both of them tend to slow what they call the QT interval on your EKG, electrocardiogram, and increase the chance of cardiac arrest. Um, Azithromycin, if you use it for three, four days, it's kind of negligible, unless you're using it with other dangerous drugs. Um, But if you have to treat the uh, uh, COVID 19 for two or three weeks, if some people uh, uh, require treatment, you may run into some problems. But it, 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 neither of them have any benefit. What does seem to work for people that are very, very ill and on a respirator is a dexamethasone. Dexamethasone is a synthetic uh, produced um, cortisone medication, similar to prednisone, which a lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis and other things like that take. People with asthma take it. Um, it, um, it works and it does decrease, um, the days on the respirator, decreased uh, mortality and decrease the number of days in the hospital and decrease the number of days in ICU. So you're uh, more likely to live if you are extremely ill and on a respirator. Now, if you, there's the remdesivir, which is one of these, um, um, it inhibits the, um, the actual um, reproduction of the um, uh, virus in the body. And um, what it does, uh, it seems to work with those people who are sick enough in ICU on oxygen, but not if they're on the respirator. Once they're on a respirator, they seem to be too sick and the remdesivir does not seem to work. But tons of people on that because when anybody gets uh, sick enough to go to the hospital, 80% of them are on oxygen and being able to make them better or improve their case with remdesivir is very very useful. Um, the other thing, the other thing that they they, they use is um, let's see, it's a uh, monoclonal antibody. Um, yeah, tocilizumab. Tocilizumab is a monoclonal antibody interleukin six. What happens is is that And one of the problems that people get so, why they get so sick with this is that there is such an intense inflammatory reaction that the body produces to try and get rid of and fight off the virus. The uh, inflammatory reaction is so intense, it actually damages the body itself. And um, this tocilizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against interleukin-6, is one of the inflammatory mediators that are overproduced. During this illness, and some people have improved uh, on that. It, um, it in the hospital, it uh, decreased the death rate almost 50 percent, and um, yeah, but it tends to increase the superinfection rate a little bit, which means you may get a bacterial pneumonia on top of it. But they, that doesn't uh, make you more likely to die. You know, those uh, superinfections can be treated with antibiotics and those people survive just as well. But a 50% decrease in the hospital mortality is dramatic with this drug. Well, the 50% um,
1: of anything would, would be good. A, a question with the inflammatory reaction and people who end up being hospitalized because they're experiencing an inflammatory reaction that is, that is greater than just the normal uh, infection response. Is there anything in the history of these people? that uh, they've had prior experiences like they've had measles or chickenpox, or they, they just had a shingle shot or a flu shot. Is there anything that would be predictive of someone who gets COVID-19 that they can expect that they're a better candidate for a, an ex, uh, a larger inflammatory reaction? Uh,
0: not really, per se. All I can say is the older you are, the more likely you are to be sicker than you were from this than otherwise. And part of that is always the, uh, the this, this so-called cytokine surge. And, um, and, um, and if you have comorbidities, particularly chronic obstructive lung disease, you're more likely to succumb to it. Uh, diabetics, people who have coronary disease, history of strokes and uh, heart failure, also um, suffer a little bit more too. This, uh, this, this so-called cytokine storm or cytokine surge, um, can occur in just about anybody. And if you're sick enough to be in the hospital, you got it, you can pretty much assume that you have it. And they, they they test it by doing blood tests and they can see that there's an inflammatory response. And if you can do an inflammatory, um, Uh, blood tests on on the admission in the the emergency room, you know right away that um, you suspect this cytokine storm and you can treat with this drug if it's start
1: Start early with it. Well, very good. Well, Mm -hmm. we're about out of time. Dr. Magus, thank you so much. Uh, And thank you for for coming on repeatedly to give us an update on how things are going. We'll appreciate the uh, new treatments and hope for some vaccines soon.
0: Okay, take care.
1: Thank you very much. That was Dr. Daniel Magus giving us an update on what's going on with COVID 19. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the advocate. I'm actually Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate, uh, and in the next two segments, we're going to be talking to a returning guest from the Ohio State University uh, Department of History and School of Law, Professor David uh, Stebbin. Uh, David, thank you for joining us again. Welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me back on, Nick.
1: Uh, last time we were talking about COVID and the effects of COVID on our economy, but uh, since that time, you published a book called The Promised Land. And uh, thank you for sending me a copy of it. It's a very interesting look see into the history, the 20th century history of the United States, specifically not only the economy, but also the, the moods and the uh, different things that people were thinking back then from the 1920s through the 1960s and beyond. Uh, but anyway, just a little, before we get going, a little bit about your background. Uh, you're a professor down at The Ohio State University, and uh, tell us a little bit about your specialty.
2: Well, I primarily teach the period uh, covered by the book, in other words, uh, from the 1930s through the 1960s, and I also teach more the more recent past, but I teach the era in which uh, the middle class rose economically, politically, socially, and culturally, and there's a lot of interest in that period, especially in Ohio, because it was a time of very great prosperity for Ohioans. Uh, and it's a time when Ohio became a predominantly prosperous middle-class place, both in terms of urban area, metro areas, and also uh, uh, small towns and, and rural areas.
1: Philosophically and socially, tracing uh, the uh, American public from 1929 and earlier, through 1968, we had the concept of the middle class uh, take hold. And in your book, you talk about uh, how the middle class, especially getting us out of the Great Depression, was something that grew. What was the most surprising thing you found about the emergence of the middle class during such a tough and difficult time as the Depression?
2: Right. Well, one of the big surprises was how unpredictable that outcome seemed in the 1930s, how unexpected. In other words, when the Great Depression first began in the late 20s and early 30s, income and wealth were quite unevenly distributed. In other words, the 20s were, generally speaking, a prosperous time, but wealth and income inequality by the later 1920s were about what they are now. Uh, and so it would have been very hard to predict uh, when the economy dropped and more and more people became poor, almost poor, that somehow this was going to translate eventually into a revival of the middle class and expansion of it. Uh, It would become bigger and more prosperous and secure than ever before. And that interested me because, of course, people are concerned about the decline of the middle class in recent decades and growing income and wealth inequality. So I was being in a story, and I thought, well, let's look at the last time the that situation uh, improved and the middle class grew, and how was that accomplished, and why did it happen, and then why did it stop? And I thought that that would be a very real interest to Americans today because they're trying to figure out how to harness the current economic situation in a way that produces uh, what some politicians call the right kind of recovery—one that makes the middle class start growing again and becoming more prosperous and secure.
1: You know, not- noticing the uh, the tracing of history as you looked at it, it's it was very interesting from the standpoint that what seems to come out is that history moved forward on a ever-changing evolution uh, from step to step that uh, looked like the next step wasn't as predictable as uh, where they were leading, so the directions that the government was taking In the late 1920s and then into the 30s, the Depression and then the uh, surfacing of social programs, which seemed at the time very anti-American, actually paid off, uh, Social Security and some of the other programs. Uh, How difficult was that, do you think, to get people to wrap around their American ideals with socialist-type programs to help the betterment of the entire country, including the, the rising middle class?
2: it was very hard at first. The culture of the 20s was very entrepreneurial. Government should be small and mostly in service to private groups in the private sector. And the president, who was in many ways an accomplished person in the late 1920s and early 30s, President Hoover, came from a business business world. He had never run for public office before. He ran for president. And his own response to the Great Depression, which he did not expect, in other words, when he campaigned in 1928 for the presidency, he predicted ever more prosperity and security. Uh, And so what we got during his unhappy four-year tenure was uh, a a very accomplished person uh, who just, it did not go well. And the worst things got the more rigidly resistant he became to certain kinds of changes of the sort that you're mentioning in terms of social programs. So the two most popular that were debated during his presidency were uh, uh, federal government deposit, bank deposit insurance, because that would have stabilized the banks and the savings of the middle class as banks began to fail during the depression. And then some sort of temporary emergency federal relief program to help move funds to the, unemployed. Historically, helping the unemployed during hard times had been a state and local matter, but the state and local governments, their resources were tapped out because the unemployment rate rose so high so quickly. And so they wanted the federal government to help with that. And Hoover disagreed strongly with the logic. In other words, he saw federal bank deposit insurance. The only responsible way you could insure bank deposits is for the federal government also to monitor very closely the way the banks invested their money. And he was against that kind of big expansion of the federal government into the realm of banking. And similarly, he just thought that it was not the responsibility of the federal government to help the unemployed, that in a country as big and regionally diverse as the U.S., that was a job for either the private sector and or state and local government. And so he said no to both of those things. And so voters became very frustrated with him and they tossed him out of office after four years, and they turned to someone instead who, who mainly was elected Franklin Roosevelt because he wasn't Herbert Hoover. In other words, he was a career politician. He was responsive to what voters wanted, and, uh, and so he came along and put these measures into place. And the way Roosevelt overcame Americans' philosophical resistance to things like Social Security was to say that, you know, this promotes a very traditional American value, saving. The only thing that's new is that it's a new mechanism for doing that. Uh, and his argument was, we're no longer in the days when most Americans are down on the farm and there's no mass advertising via the radio and so on and magazines that bombard people on a daily basis and induce them to spend money and uh, they are less able to provide for themselves in old age and hard times because they don't have a farm. So, for the modern wage earner and salary earner in particular, we need something like Social Security now. And it will promote thrift and savings. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. A conservative goal in many ways, uh, although a, a standard governmental role in doing that. And it, it, it helped the FDR himself, even though he came from an upper class background. He didn't grow up in a city. He grew up in a farming community outside of New York City. And he was around a lot of farm workers as a kid. He was an only child. And so much of his social life was with people around the farm. He learned how to express complicated ideas in ways that folks with no more than an ordinary grade school education could understand. And he had a good voice for radio And you put the two of those things together, he was very effective in using that medium to communicate with the American people and help nudge them in the direction that we're talking about. By the way, the crisis also encouraged Americans to rethink their assumptions. Uh, It made a lot more Americans insecure economically and changed their attitudes about the government at the federal level intervening to help out. And so the change was actually quite, in other words, all of a sudden, there's a majority of voters who are in favor of the federal government spending millions of dollars, even if it means a larger deficit and so on, uh, to help them out. And it, the current situation is in some ways similar in the sense that uh, very quickly the federal government has been spending very large sums of money uh, and increasing the size of the federal government deficit. But in response to voters demand that they do something because of the return of depression or unemployment.
1: Well, that that certainly uh, existed in the lives of my parents and grandparents. The uh, Depression stories were never forgotten, and uh, the distrust uh, for banks and saving of money and so forth was uh, really a a major habit and an obsession, I think, with many people of that uh, generation. But uh, we're talking to Professor David Stebbin from The Ohio State University, talking about the economy back from 1929 to present. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Professor Stebbin. We're going to be talking about the economy and what's going on with COVID. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. The Advocate we will be right back. Cleveland Phillips, with you with our final segment of The Advocate tonight. We're talking to Professor David Stebbin from The Ohio State University, talking about American history. We're talking about American history from the Great Depression of 1929 through the 1970s. And also, we want to talk a little bit about lessons learned and where are we with COVID-19 being a national trauma to all of us. Uh, Dr. and Professor Stebbin, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Such a fascinating topic because you've had time even before COVID-19 to reflect on the historical evolution that we've experienced over these last many decades, taking us out of the 20th century into the 21st century. But uh, we left it talking about the Great Depression and the uh, FDR changes and social programs. But you know, to fast forward... Ready for this? You can feel your time machine winding up here. We're going to go through World War II, the Korean War, 1950s, the baby boomers, and when the baby boomers then turned into college students in the 1960s. um, where I I call it a cultural revolution that occurred in the 70s or the 60s that uh, affected both the university students, the, the right to vote, adulthood at 18, race relations, and the abandonment of the draft all happening at one time, major, major changes. And that, that seemed to happen at the same time that the baby boomers were becoming a big demographic. Um, is, is that somewhat of a fair instant summary of what happened?
2: Yes. It's really extraordinary how large that cohort of Americans was. <clears throat> it's approximately still 75 million people. Uh, but the uh, total U.S. population in the early 1960s was a lot smaller than it is today. And so there were about 180 million Americans in 1961, uh, and the baby was still going on then, had a few more years to run. What it meant was that in the mid-1960s, half of all Americans were 27 or younger. And so there was this
0: huge
2: uh, demographic bulge Uh, And by the way, they were virtually all born and raised in the United States, the Blue cohort. cohorts. So in some ways, they had a lot in common, more in common than the more diverse population we have today. And so when they became rebellious in various ways, uh, they had the numbers to move the system, to really shake it and change it. And then, of course, they became the parents and voters and so on of of the future, and, and, and their influence only expanded. Uh, And and much of what they did was rebel against the priorities of their parents, right? As the the American system seemed to run into certain kinds of problems in the later 1960s. But even if the Vietnam War had not been going on or inflation had not been rising, their parents were traumatized by the Great Depression and World War II and developed a remarkably strong preference for stability and security. And that's what the baby boomers typically had a lot of. What they lacked was much in the way of sort of individuality. Uh, Those houses in suburbia were small, and through the mid-1960s, if you look at the high school yearbooks, the haircuts on the men for the boys, for example, are remarkably uniform by today's standards. And so even if other things had been going on, the sort of the trade-off, more stability and security, but less individuality, would likely have produced something of a backlash, I think, by the late 1960s. And so that's part of the revolution as well.
1: You know, one of the things, going back to the theme of your book, the middle class and how it developed, coming after World War II, the middle class jumped right into those large number of small tract homes and the development of the suburbs. And the idea of immigrants that were coming in at the time, there seemed to be more of a theme of conformity where everyone wanted to be the same. Leave it to Beaver. Father knows best those old TV shows that were sort of the template for how Americans were supposed to live and how families were supposed to act. In the late 60s, early 70s, we see this breaking away of that cohort into wanting to be more individual and looking for individual identities rather than the conformity. And that sort of had an impact upon a lot that happened from 1970 forward. I I was wondering in in the last couple of minutes we have, we were talking on the break about uh, the, the idea of the trauma that our culture and our society is going through now with the COVID situation. Affecting our medical care, affecting our travel, affecting our leisure, affecting our relationships. Is this the kind of major trauma that uh, is right up there with the Depression and World War II that we can see some social changes out in the streets right now? How significant is that, and are we facing some real cultural changes, another cultural revolution? Or is this going to pass briefly?
2: Well, I don't have a crystal ball. But I do think that the economic consequences and social consequences of the pandemic have made my book even more relevant. In other words, it had a relevance before because it dealt with how to make the middle class bigger, how that was done. But the economic conditions and social unrest that have come with uh, the coronavirus outbreak uh, are not entirely different on the great depression and the clearest parallel has to do with how high unemployment now is it's back to a level that we haven't seen since the last few years the great depression and there was rioting and social unrest and more pressure on the government to spend money uh, president hoover one of the ways that he got in trouble with voters is because when veterans protested against the Great Depression in Washington in the summer of 1932, he sent in the army to disperse them, and that really turned off much of the broad electorate. That's not what they wanted the president to do. And so there are parallels. And one of the crucial questions early on when the pandemic began was, is this a, a blip, something that will last a month or two and then go away? And while it's hard to be sure about this, with every passing day and week, it seems as though this situation is going to last for a while. And the longer it lasts, the more economic consequences it has, and the more it's like the Great Depression. In other words, in terms of changing people's values, they're thinking about what the government should be doing, and so on. Uh, And so as of today, it looks like it is going to have that kind of big impact on the system. And who knows, The situation may look very different in a month or two. But so far, all the indications are that We'll we'll be in this for a while.
1: Interesting to note, uh, sort of big picture, is that uh, the federal administration has sort of backed off from controlling the entire United States as a whole and has shifted a lot of responsibility to the states who are handling it differently. And and we can see where we're developing COVID hotspots in different uh, parts of the country at different times. And that can continue to whipsaw back and forth. So the, the question would be, are we going to see maybe a pendulum swing back the federal government asserting itself more in taking a national control over this situation than letting it go by state by state?
2: Right. And in the era that I study, the federal government did more. In other words, its role expanded because the crisis became truly national. And the uh, there's an argument for... Primarily state and local uh, government dealing with problems that they vary across the country. But today the country the population is so mobile uh, that it's hard to confine this kind of crisis to one or, or some places and not others. Uh, and one example is the relationship between the state of New York, the city of New York, and the state of Florida. There's so much movement of people between those two places uh, historically that it's hard for New York or Florida to have its own policy without more coordination. And so that's the argument for a stronger federal government role. Uh, and, And we'll see what happens. The electorate, I suspect that will be one of the issues that it votes on in the fall, is do we want the federal government to do more? Uh, and the presidents do more. And so that might be a change.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's certainly uh, a time for new thoughts and new ideas because of those things that uh, can maybe ma- be made better by, by changing things. Before we go, we have a few more seconds. Uh, your book is a wonderful book. It's called The Promised Land. And it's How the Rise and Fall of the Middle Class Transformed America, 1929 to 1968. But to fellow baby boomers, I just want to suggest this would be an outstanding book for a book club because the chapters sort of flow chronologically. And most baby boomers remember most of what's in this book, especially when you get to the 50s and 60s and 70s. So uh, I think that's where we're looking at it. Well, uh, David, uh, Stevin, thank you so much for joining us tonight and oh, uh, sharing with us I think us, I yeah, we'll, we'll, the, book, uh, the book, by the way, yes. is
2: available wherever books are sold.
1: Well, very good. It's called The Promised Land, and that's referring to the United States of America. So uh, you should always remember that. Anyway, David, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night.
0: And I sat and watched the
1: Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning, and only my mind.